0: visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we dive deeper into the topic of microelectronics to better understand the history of chip design and manufacturing and the impact that chips have had on every aspect of our lives. I welcome to the show scholar and author Chris Miller. Chris teaches international history at Tufts University's Fletcher School. Uh, He also serves as Gene Kirkpatrick visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Eurasia Director at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and as a director of Green Mantle, a New York, London-based macroeconomic and geopolitical consultancy. Uh, You can visit his website at ChristopherMiller.net and follow him on Twitter at CRMiller1. Most importantly for this episode, though, Chris recently wrote a book entitled Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Before I bring him on the show, I want to say that, you know, we talk about microelectronics a lot in everyday business. Uh, it's a topic our listeners want to uh, discuss more on the show. Uh, it's in the news. It's been the focus of key legislation before Congress, most notably the, the CHIPS Act. We all look forward to the next iteration of our favorite smart device. And we obviously talk a lot about Silicon Valley being the epicenter of the tech sector in the U.S., Obviously, though, there are technology corridors in every state, uh, as well as every country around the world. You know, microelectronics is, quite frankly, ubiquitous, and it underpins everything we want to do in business and military. But how often do we really stop to think, do we truly understand the complexity of microelectronics sector uh, to make the right decisions across business, government policy, and so on? I would argue that we don't take the time often enough to dive into these critical topics uh, the way we should to truly understand them and to to be honest assessors of how some of these topics have uh, evolved over the over the decades. But we have to do that if we want to have a strong economy, uh, if we want to have a productive and successful workforce, uh, you know, if we want to have EMS superiority or military advantage and across any warfighting domain, uh, we need to collectively know more. So the book Chip War by Chris Miller takes us on this journey. Uh, it, it's a great book. It, it makes this topic accessible and really highlights the evolution of the microelectronic sector over the past uh, 70 years. It also sheds light on the path that we need to follow to maintain our advantage in this sector. Uh, with that, I want to welcome my guest, Chris Miller. Chris, welcome to From the Crows Nest. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ken. All right. So as I mentioned in the introduction, this is a great book, made this very complicated issue very accessible and really helped kind of uncover a lot of the evolution of the microelectronics sector. I wanted to kind of start with you to kind of talk about what inspired you to write about this, because it's not something that I think that would be readily available or readily in, you know, to be inspired to write a, a book like this. But it's very well done.
1: Well, well, thanks. Yeah. And I initially came to this topic actually not planning to write a book about semiconductors, but about military history. And the question I wanted to ask at the outset was, why was it that in the early days of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had what appeared like comparable capabilities to produce the most important technologies, nuclear weapons, for example, long-range missiles and space capabilities. But over the subsequent decades, the U.S. surged ahead when it came to Uh, computing capabilities that were attached to to, uh, military systems, like missile guidance, for example, whereas the Soviet Union completely failed to do the same thing, despite having great physicists and very smart scientists and putting lots of money into it. And I came to realize that one of the key differentiating factors was that the US was able to build a a vast semiconductor industry that was eventually came to serve uh, civilian uses, but really had its origins in military technology, whereas the Soviet Union failed to do that. And I think that explains a lot of why the Cold War ended the way that it did with a U.S. military victory. But it also uh, led me to realize that semiconductors are a lot more important uh, in shaping the modern world than most of us realize. And it's not just historically, of course, it's when you look at U.S. and China dynamics today.
0: Yeah, and and you mentioned in your book, you know, quote unquote, the fate of nations has kind of rested on the ability to harness the the ability to harness computing power and so forth. And it's something that would will likely continue to be the case moving forward. So it's really important to kind of understand all the forces at play. So you start off the book. What I really liked about it was it wasn't just like, hey, here's an important topic. It's you, you really start to go back at the beginning and you kind of start the book at around World War II coming out of that. And it was it was a time where you know, there was a lot of industrial activity, a lot of new military technology coming out, and it kind of was the one of the key points where we started to see this shift to this understanding or ex- exploration of computerization and microelectronics. Could you talk about that kind of period as a, as a kickoff to really the global security sector that we have today with microelectronics?
1: Well, yeah, One of the, the key challenges of the period was how do you fit computing power into into small devices, and for a missile guidance system, for example, there was a huge premium placed on size. You needed a small size. You needed a low power consumption, and you needed as much computing as you could get. and And that really was a spur to the miniaturization that turned computers from something that fit in the size of a room, which is what they were in the 1940s and 50s, uh, into something that today fits uh, in the size of a smartphone. Uh, and it was the the military was really the key driver there because the military was willing to pay top dollar for very small production runs. uh, And that was a critical factor in making it possible to produce the earliest chips. And if you look from the 1950s with the invention of the first integrated circuits all the way up to the present, uh, what you find is that the Defense Department and DARPA in particular have been key drivers of almost every single revolution in microelectronics technology uh, over that time period. And it's It's because they were uh, willing to test the frontier with ideas that weren't commercially viable when they were first pioneered, uh, but then were picked up by commercially focused firms and uh, turned into technologies that were used across consumer devices. You've got a really close relationship between defense demands and then the ability of U.S. firms focused on civilian markets to capitalize on the technologies that emerged. And what, one of the things I've
0: I've learned, uh, one of the challenges that I've learned and talked about with this topic is that, and you kind of addressed at the beginning, you mentioned it here was this idea of you, you, you miniaturize it, but you have to produce it to scale. And you also have to have the production run that actually helps you make the profit. And early on, the government was really, you mentioned, able to pay top dollar for smaller production runs and stuff. But today, and that really drove a lot of the development. But today, maybe you almost see a little bit of the the reverse going on, where with the commercial sector, but it's really hard to for the government to afford. Or how does it look today, where you the challenge to produce, to scale, and the large enough production run to actually help companies make money to advance military technology?
1: Yeah, in some ways, the problem today is that small production runs are even more expensive than they were in the past because the economies of scale, both in designing an advanced chip and then in fabricating it are such that it's really hard to do something near the leading edge that isn't selling hundreds of thousands or or millions of units. And iPhone chips and PC processors do sell in that volume, whereas defense systems don't. And I, I think part of the challenge that the defense industry has dealt with over the past decade or so is being more active in trying to take commercially designed systems and apply them to, to military systems. and that's that's part of the solution. But I think more than that is actually finding ways to drive down the cost of, of smaller batch production. And we see a lot of uh, focus now on, for example, how do you drive down the cost of chip design, which has gotten horrendously expensive near the leading edge. And that's going to be a key question, because if you look forward, one of the key, I think, drivers of innovation in this sphere is going to be more types of chip designs to capitalize on um, having designs that are optimized to specific use cases. And that's only going to be possible to do if we're able to find ways to make design cheaper so it's economically plausible to do it in more cases.
0: And then you have the challenge of manufacturing the chip, and it seems that over the course of decades, it's, it's really kind of uh, the manufacturing of the, f- the, the, the fabs are, you know, you only have a few that are really kind of responsible for the large majority of manufacturing of the, the fab. So, not only do you have more expensive chip design, but you have less availability to fabricate and, and manufacture the chip. So, how do you see that tension continuing to play out moving forward?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a big challenge today, whether you're looking at the leading edge, the, the most leading edge, or or even more generally, fabrication capacity for small batch production is limited and the foundries are all focused primarily on their main commercial customers, not not smaller volume customers or or researchers. You know, I think one of the things that makes me more excited about the recent CHIPS Act funding, as well as some of DARPA's programs, is that there's a focus now on making sure there is fabrication capacity that's uh, open and accessible to universities, to researchers, and to, to startups or smaller scale firms. And I think that's really important because if you can... Uh, prove that your chip will work in small batches, and it'll be much more plausible to take it to TSMC or take it to one of the big foundries and convince them to produce it in in larger volumes. And so we need to make sure we've got this sort of lab to fab transition more accessible to to smaller batch production. And that's especially important, I think, in the defense realm where batch sizes are always going to be smaller since you're not going to sell 100 million iPhones, you're going to put it in a small number of systems.
0: And, and that seemed to be kind of uh, one of the forces at work early on, where the ability to take a risk and, on a new fab design, without as much concern about the capacity to to fabricate a large large batch production. And you mentioned with the with government supporting it and everything. It, it almost it, would you say that the chips act kind of takes a few of the best practices from previous earlier times and kind of tries to update them and, and
1: to address current challenges. I think the the R&D focus side of the CHIPS Act will do some of this, and I hope it does a lot of this, because one of the things that's worked really well over the course of U.S. government investment in microelectronics is making sure we've got clear pathways from turning an idea into a prototype and a prototype into a system that can be rolled out in practice. And and DARPA and other organizations, uh, the Defense Department more generally, has done a lot of work over the past 70 years in in funding these types of pathways and making sure that those are still available even as the cost of fabrication goes up and even as more fabrication capacity is no longer in the US is really very important. And that's where I think there's the most scope for the government to play a big role on the R&D side. It's just making it easier to do R&D.
0: Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems' research and development and production organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background?
2: Yes, and thank you for having me. BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to the innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research, and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making, up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter.
0: This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crows Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field?
2: In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like
0: absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you?
2: Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work classification levels, but in FAST Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash Fast
0: Labs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest, and now it's time to get back to our show. Now w- one of the things I really enjoyed about the book was the introduction of a l- number of different actors, people that really kind of shifted the the debate, shifted the 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 sector in one direction or another over the course of decades. And you know a lot of these the people that you talk about in the book, they they've kind of seeped into all of our minds and all of our lives that we never really kind of attach like oh this was this happened back then in in this context. And it was very interesting to kind of see how we've been affected by microelectronics sector for, for decades, without sometimes without even knowing it. You spend a great deal of time, and we won't go into all of them, but I wanted to know, like, what are some of the key individuals or groups of people that really kind of were game changers along the way? Uh, you mentioned you know, the, the, the quote-unquote traitorous Eight that included Gordon Moore, that we're all familiar with, Moore's Law, and so forth. What are some of the, the, the major actors that really kind of made, created the sea change over the decades?
1: Like the person that, that stands out for me the most is, is someone who is not as publicly known as Gordon Moore or uh, Bob Noyce, the other co-founder of Intel, or uh, Jack Kilby, one of the co-inventors of the integrated circuit, but uh, a gentleman named Morris Chang, who in my view is one of the most underestimated business people or entrepreneurs of the, the last 100 years. Uh, he was one of the key figures in Texas Instruments in building up uh, that company into a real semiconductor powerhouse, especially in the 1970s and into the 1980s, and played a really fundamental role in TI's ability to learn how to produce chips at scale. And TI was one of the companies that first learned how to do that. And then he was uh, passed over as for the CEO job at TI in the 1980s, and a great error of, of 20th century business history, I think. And uh, and then was given an offer by the Taiwanese government to set up a, a new company there, and, and that company became TSMC, which is today the world's largest chip maker. And so, Morris Chang's career, I think, both. Uh, sheds light on how it was that the US saw the emergence of the semiconductor industry in the US by honing manufacturing technology and by taking chips and applying them to vast consumer markets, but then also how uh, the US uh, found itself falling behind in certain metrics, especially in terms of uh, advanced fabrication over the past uh, decade or or so. And so I I think the career of Morris Chang has uh, both profoundly transformed our lives and Everyone, every day, touches a chip that his company made. It's it's sort of extraordinary, the influence that uh, he's had. Um, but also the, the challenge in the fact that today, 90% of the most advanced logic chips can only be produced in Taiwan uh, by his company, which, of course, brings up all sorts of complex geopolitical risks.
0: Right. Well, well since, since you mentioned that, I mean, I wanted to, to talk with you a little bit about how the geopolitical nature of, the, of this uh, topic obviously... A great deal of capacity rests with Taiwan and as well as other Asian countries, Korea and Japan. And, of course, China obviously plays a key role in this. One of the things I found interesting with China was its dependency on importing the manufacturing of chips. You hear in the news, you think that they hold a different place in the debate than maybe is real. Could you... Talk a little bit about some of the dynamics uh, in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, it's a that's a kind of a loaded question, but you know we can kind of go on from like what are some of the things that we have to keep in keep in mind moving forward about the relationships over there, obviously with the Taiwan Strait and, and U.S. China relations that are going to shape this uh, sector moving forward.
1: Yeah, well, I I think this is the big question hanging over the industry, um, and there's a couple dynamics at play. One is that Taiwan remains absolutely central and really irreplaceable in the short and medium term as a supplier of chips. And it's not only the most cutting edge logic chips, although it's important as a uh, crucial supplier of those. Everything from smartphones to PCs to data centers you can barely function without chips from TSMC, but also lagging edge as well. Uh, over one third of the computing power we add each year comes from Taiwan. So it's a huge number of chips and everything from dishwashers to, to data centers. China is the other factor. China is still relatively dependent on both imported chips, which they buy from the uh, Taiwanese, South Koreans, the United States, uh, but also chip-making tools and software, which uh, is largely imported from the U.S., Japan, the Netherlands, and and a couple of other uh, countries. However, China has been spending tens of billions of dollars a year over the past decade or so to try to domesticate some of this technology. And the big question going forward is, will this work, or to what extent uh, will it work? And, And if so, what will that mean? Uh, economically and, and geopolitically. And so I think we've got an interesting dynamic with China pouring money in, the U.S. tightening controls, trying to restrict the transfer of technology to China, and China growing its military power year after year with the primary goal of being able to better threaten Taiwan, the world's most important producer of chips. So you really can't understand, I don't think, the geopolitical balance in Asia or even the military balance in Asia without understanding the deep interrelationship with the world's chip supply. And I guess the, the final irony to note is that over the past decade, both the US military and the Chinese military have been reliant on chips produced by TSMC. We know that there are chips the U.S. military buys from TSMC, and we've got great open source evidence of ways that the Chinese military has been able to access TSMC-produced chips. So uh, both of the world's militaries, as they engage in what can only be described as an arms race in the Taiwan Straits, are relying on computing power produced by a single firm on the island that is most in contest right now.
0: And one of the attributes of competition is, you know, increasing cost and risk of your adversary – or avoiding cost and risk on your own part. And I think when you look at, you know, Taiwan's capacity to manufacture chips, as well as the trade relationship between U.S. and China, I mean, there's a lot going on in terms of what steps either country would be willing to take that may or may not increase the risk to chip manufacturing, chip design, freedom of navigation around the Pacific. And it seems to be kind of underpinning so much of how we think you know, how we're thinking about moving forward or how other other countries are, are, are approaching
1: the issue. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think if you think about military scenarios in the Taiwan Straits and especially the the scenarios that are less than sort of a, a D-Day style invasion blockade scenarios or uh, limited Chinese strike scenarios, all of them would deeply implicate the semiconductor supply chain. And in the U.S. response to any sort of more limited scenario, the economic cost of any escalatory move would weigh very heavily on the U.S. president's decision making, which is why in most of the potential military scenarios in the Taiwan Straits, you you can't really understand the dynamics of thinking about semiconductors. I think the other facet that's really important is if you look at the way the U.S. military is thinking about how to address the fact that it's uh, position vis a vis China has deteriorated in the last decade. The strategy is very clearly to offset China's quantitative advantages with qualitative advantages. And the primary qualitative advantage the U.S. has had historically is the ability to deploy computing power to military systems. And the question right now is: A, can the U.S. keep or even grow its edge vis a vis China in terms of these foundational technologies? And then, B, can they be deployed in a, a fast enough time horizon to defense systems to make a difference on the battlefield?
0: one of the things that you you discuss later in the book there seems to be a, a distinction between obviously you know when we talk globalization and global economy you know there's a lot of business decisions and then of course you have the the, the security strategic decisions being made by governments and how do you see that playing out particularly when when you look at the United States or in some of our allies and and the ability to influence business decisions to the betterment of the strategic, Values that we, we need to protect around the world versus some of our adversaries who don't necessarily have that distinction between commercial and public sector, the government can come in and basically shape the business decisions they feel are, are necessary. How does that influence the evolution of this
1: yeah, it's an interesting question I mean I, I think one of the trends that we're seeing in in all countries is more politicization of the chip industry. certainly we see this in places like China where the government has always been deeply involved and is even more involved but even in, in the US or Europe or Japan, uh, there's more government involvement today than there was a couple of years ago. And, and for companies, this is uncomfortable. And I think for government, this has been uncomfortable uh, too. But it's not surprising, I don't think, uh, given A, as you say, adversaries are doing this even more so, and B, unlike uh, a decade or so ago, where most companies in the chip industry preferred to think of their technology being primarily or in some cases even solely relevant to iPhones and PCs and consumer devices. Today, it's impossible to think about semiconductors without considering their defense and military ramifications. And so long as that's the case, Uh, And so long as the the military balance between the U.S. and China remains uncertain, I think we're going to have to assume that governments are going to be more involved in semiconductor industries and the supply chain more generally because it's a critical national security issue. And and I think the chip industry is slowly adjusting to this new reality, but it is a bit of a cultural shift relative to the past couple of decades in which uh, most people in in the commercially focused chip industry could pretty safely ignore government and uh, not have to think very much about it.
0: So underpinning a lot of the discussions are, of course, is the need for really smart, innovative minds, uh, really skilled people to fabricate, uh, design and fabricate chips, obviously you need a skilled workforce. And so I want to spend a a few minutes just talking about the the workforce dynamic because the workforce is – of each of the respective countries that are involved in this around the world, you know, it, they, they bring a various perspective to the, the conversation. Talk a little bit about some of the advantages and challenges of going on in the workforce in the U.S. and some of our allies versus uh, some of our adversaries.
1: Well, it, it is a big challenge for the U.S., especially in parts of the chip production process where the U.S. has been playing a less substantial role than in the past. And especially when you look at the fabrication stage of making a semiconductor the US market share here has declined really dramatically over the past 3 decades and as a result the the workforce has declined as well and i think if you look at the pipelines of uh, new workers into this field you find that there are gaps there as well if you chart for example the number of electrical electrical engineering graduates from PhD programs versus computer science graduates, you'll find a a huge shift in recent decades towards computer science. And that's not a bad thing per se, but we need to make sure we've got the electrical engineers and the the material science experts and and others that, that are needed for semiconductor production too. So one of the things that I think that CHIPS uh, and Science Act will do is put a bit more focus on making sure we have pipelines in place from picking up first-year students in college, showing them where to get the internships that they need, and then uh, helping them understand career paths ahead of them so that we get the uh, the workers with the expertise that is needed in, in the chip industry, and especially in the fabrication step, which is where there's going to be a lot more demand, I think, in the future than was previously expected.
0: One of the the passages that I really... really uh liked was uh, when you were talking about sony's akio morita and he made a great statement where he's you and you quote him saying the united states has been busy creating lawyers while japan has been busier creating engineers and basically looking how japan and and i think a lot of asian cultures look have have a much more long-range view of of thinking sometimes about career development uh workforce development and so forth uh, what are some of the lessons that we can learn from from them in terms of, to build up the U.S. workforce and or or generally, are how do we address some of the challenges moving forward based on what we've learned about the sectors through your research?
1: Well, one of the things that that I came to realize as I did the research for this book, and that I hope the book helps make clear for people who are not semiconductor experts, is is really how transformative and cool this technology is, and I think for For most of U.S. society, when people think of tech, they think of social media or consumer internet uh, firms, and and obviously Facebook and TikTok are uh, important, I guess, but uh, far more interesting to me, and I think when you actually dig into it to most people, is the hardware on which uh, all of the internet uh, relies and on which social media wouldn't exist. And so what I wanted to do in this book was to explain hey, this is really important. Uh, it's really cool. There's fascinating technology involved. And I think as we help people understand how, how critical microelectronics are in their daily lives and how fascinating the underlying science and technology is, I, I hope that does reopen people's uh, definition of technology so they're not just thinking about Facebook, but they're thinking about actually the, the chips on which uh, all of uh, Facebook's, uh, all, all the sort of likes and posts actually depend.
0: Well, that, that is all the time we have uh, for this show. Chris, it's great to have you on From the Crows Nest to talk about this, and we look forward to having you back on uh, from time to time, maybe to, to keep us informed uh, about how this uh, sector is
1: moving forward. Thank you for joining me. Well, Thanks for having me, Ken.
0: That will conclude this episode of From the Crows Nest. I want to thank my guest, Chris Miller, for joining me. Again, his book is Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Uh, you can visit his website at ChristopherMiller.net and follow him on Twitter at C.R. Miller One. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.